And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the hump day edition of The Real Investment Show. It is, of course, Wednesday, second day of August, as we continue to... Uh, work through our kind of massive surge in earnings today. CVS, Etsy, quite a few companies reporting earnings. Again, this has really just kind of been the deluge of what's been going on in the markets over the last, you know, couple of, of, of weeks here. It's just been this, this big surge in earnings that's been, as we've been talking about, that's been helping provide a bit under stocks. Now, we've been discussing over the last week or so, markets were getting very extended, very exuberant and that we likely have you know, a bit of a correction here. May have seen some of that start yesterday. Futures this morning are pointing a bit lower, not dramatically. Um, and you know, besides that, yesterday was down a bit, um, but the markets did kind of have a, a bit of buying underneath them. They actually kind of rose off their lows from the early morning. So even when we have these, these corrections in the markets, markets have been able to find a little bit of footing. Um, before we before we get into that, you know, I'd like to talk a little bit about you know what's happening in terms of the economics of all this. You know, one of the things that we keep talking about is you know this, as, and, and again, this has really been the topic, right? You know, when are we going to get a recession? Uh, B of A now is joining Bank of America now joining the camp of the Federal Federal Reserve saying, hey, no recession, but yet. We have the biggest drop in tax receipts of any recessionary period on record, right? I mean, so this is, you know, we've had this massive decline in the amount of tax receipts being collected, which typically would align with the recession. So, you know, we take a look at a lot of the economic indicators, the manufacturing indexes, the, you know, the, the services indexes, et cetera. A lot of them show a lot of weakness. A lot of them are in recessionary territory. Job openings are declining. Um, you know, and so that would also suggest that, look, if companies are cutting back on the number of job openings, then maybe they're starting to see some weakness in demand and they're like, okay, I've got enough people hired, don't need to have any more people, take those job openings down. Quit rates are declining. So people are going, hey, you know, maybe I just won't quit my job to go take another job because there's not another job that might be available. Those are all kinds of signs that are starting to tell you the economy is starting to slow down here a bit. And the question is, is, does it become more than just a slowdown? Or do we begin to see some type of, of recovery here? I mean, we've had a lot of negative economic data for quite some time, but we also have to remember that we had this big surge in economic, uh, you know, kind of this gangbuster economic growth because of all that stimulus money that was plugged into the economy. So it, this has been a very challenging thing to try to figure out. Nobody's got it down. Nobody knows what it is for sure. But there is plenty of evidence that we're now starting to see some signs of economic erosion within the economy. And this is the one thing we've got to kind of keep a watch on because uh, as we start going back and talking about interest rates, the lag effect, uh, you know, rising consumer credit, rising, uh, you know, government debt, uh, obviously the government you know, issuing a lot of debt here recently. You know, this is all going to weigh into, you know, economic activity as we get further down the road. And again, slower economic activity, lower rates of inflation. So this is going to you know, keep pushing inflation towards the Fed's goal of 2%. The question, of course, becomes when or if the Federal Reserve will start cutting rates. And again, this is, you know, we go back to, to all the support of the rally that we've had really since October. 
has all been based on this idea that the Fed would cut rates. But as we've said before, the Fed's only going to cut rates when we actually get to some type of recessionary activity. The question becomes, again, the timing, right? When is that recession going to show up? Nobody knows that answer for sure. But again, it certainly seems like you're going to have a recession. There's certainly a lot of data supporting that. But, you know, the other side of this also is that we've had negative data for quite some time. And there's that and we're starting to see like, again, we take a look at consumer sentiment. We're starting to see consumers becoming more optimistic. It's, it's a it's a it's the dichotomy is very interesting. We've never seen something like this before that I can find. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure this has probably happened at some point. I just haven't been able to find a precedent where you've had such a period in time that was so skewed by so much monetary interventions put into the economy at one time. Again, we'll we'll get around around all that. But this morning, here's what you need to know before the bell. Um, the NASDAQ, of course, has been the clear winner of markets over the course of the last year. And, and really, as, as we've seen this rally from those October lows in the NASDAQ, again, yes, it's been driven by a handful of stocks. Yes, that's true. Breadth has been broadening out, absolutely for sure. That has been going on. But we're starting to pick up some really interesting negative divergences within the markets. And again, we start taking a look at what's happening here. The NASDAQ's been running right along this 20-day moving average in particular from those October lows. It's been a very, very stable advance up to this point, been driven, and again, this is not a surprise, passive inflows into the market. In other words, people buying passive you know, ETFs, basically just kind of passive investing. That's been, that's been the bulk of the flows coming into the markets, not rather than just buying individual stocks or just buying baskets of stocks. Those baskets of stocks are heavily weighted in those top 10 stocks in the index, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Nvidia, et cetera, which explains this very steady rise in the market because this very steady rise in the market also looks very similar to the rise of passive inflows into the market. So again, that, that very much explains that. But here just recently, we're now running back into these previous highs that we saw in January of 2022. So pretty amazing that we had this peak in the market in January 2022. Lots of exuberance, lots of excitement because of all that stimulus money. Uh, the market sold off here. We've now rallied all the way back to that peak, completely recovering that without all that stimulus. So again, this has been driven by a lot of, of exuberance that isn't been really supported by checks to households and other things. So it just goes to show you, A, how much money is out there just circulating around the economy. But the, the exuberance that's been pushing this, these markets higher here, this chase to be in the markets, this fear of missing out, has, has really been quite extraordinary up to this point. But here's uh, the thing to watch is that uh, we're getting negative divergences now in relative strength as well as in our MACD indicators as well. Market is going up, but you have a negative divergence in the underlying technical indicators. Momentum of that move is, is, is slowing down. Uh, this morning, again, futures are pointing a, a bit lower here. And when we look at the markets, <coughs> excuse me, and when we look at the markets, this negative divergence is going to have to be corrected at some point. In other words, the momentum, the slowing momentum built will be eventually reflected in the overall price of the market. So we're not there just yet, but it is starting to, to, to really weigh on this. Once we take out these, the, these kind of initial moving averages, importantly, particularly at the 20-day moving average, it's going to be the 50 and the 100 that are the most likely candidates for a correction here in the short term. So again, 
that could be that decent three to five percent correction that we've been talking about over the next month or so would not be surprising at all. And again, because of the negative divergences that we're seeing in some of these indicators, certainly suggests that we're likely closer to that than not. And again, that would be completely normal. In fact, it would be healthy for the markets to have a bit of a correction that'll provide you a better uh, opportunity to increase exposure. But you know, we've been talking about this for a while and it hasn't, it's, like, it's not gonna happen because the markets just kind of keep going up. And it could certainly do that for quite a long time, but eventually, these negative divergences will, will kind of play catch up with each other. They always do because these indicators are a, are a function of the price momentum in the underlying market. So again, a bit of a correction here before you kind of get the next advance in the markets. So again, just as, as I've been saying, I know it's a little bit ad nauseum, we repeat this a lot, but whether it's the NASDAQ or the S&P or whatever, it's a function of those passive flows that have been driving the markets. And if we see a reversal there, you're gonna get at least a short-term correction again. Correction does not mean a bear market. It just means a better opportunity to put money at work on a better risk reward basis. <clears throat> but that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Um, when we come back, we'll pick up Danny Ratliff. Six signs that you might be ready to retire. I really want to know this because I, I want to know if I'm ready. We'll talk about that after the break. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Robert Stady Ratliff. Joining me, uh, just so you know, yes, we're going to talk about the debt, uh, the debt downgrade tomorrow with Michael Leibowitz when he's here on the show. So I haven't overlooked it. I know it's there. Just uh, wait till tomorrow. Uh, I'm doing some work on it uh, this afternoon uh, because we've done this before back in 2011. So tomorrow we'll have kind of uh, a, a deeper discussion on the debt downgrade and why it doesn't mean anything. And we'll talk about that tomorrow. And you still have one AAA rated. Well, and, and again, it's, it, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Uh, again, the, the way you know that is, is because the dollar rallied yesterday. If, if the debt downgrade meant something, the dollar would decline because people would be taking their money out of reserve assets, right? Not yeah. putting money into reserve assets. So that's, that's all you really need to know. But we'll get into it more tomorrow. Um, so... Danny has a, 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 you know, Danny's always telling me here on the show that I can't retire. My plan doesn't work. So we're going to put him to the test this morning, talking about the six signs if you're ready to retire. So I may retire at the end of the show today, depending on the answers to these questions. So, so guys, if I'm extremely pessimistic on this, excuse me here. This is all for Lance. So, yes. But uh, am I ready to retire? That's the question. Uh, you know, I don't know. I think that it the gauge for each and every individual is so different, Lance. And yeah. I think that that's one thing that's so difficult for many people to, to really understand. You know, a common question we get frequently is, you know, what's the magic number? What do I need to retire? And I think that the financial, financial industry does a lot of disservice in some ways because they may, you, you've seen all the commercials where you're walking down the path and they say, well, here's your number, here's your number. Um, and the problem with that is that sometimes that number is just so large and you, just, you visit with somebody that's young it's just they feel like it's unattainable, and mm -hmm. they don't. They say, "Well, forget it. I'm not going to put funds aside." Well, you, you know, it, it's interesting that that you say that because just this morning they had a, a Gallup poll out, okay. and I thought this was interesting. They they interviewed uh, kids between the ages of 13 and 18, 
and they ask them about what they thought, thought about America, only 18% thought America was a good country, right? And these are American kids. These are, yeah, these are American kids. Okay. <laughs> I was like, whoa, hey. So, but here, here's my point is, uh, you know, is that because of social media, right? And uh, mm-hmm. there was a, a, a really interesting chart out this morning by Charter uh, talking about the rise in social media is now the preferred news source. Right. So, oh, man. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, if it's on the Internet, it must be true. Right. But, you know, you can't really blame a lot of these younger kids for not wanting to save money and not investing in those type of things, because all they're told is, is about how terrible things are. You know, there's there's the you know, the rich people have all the money. Nobody else has any money. There's no hope for you. America sucks. Capitalism is broken. So, you know, and just all these things. And it's like, well, hell, if that's the case, why am I going to? You know, what do am this. I doing? Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, but that creates a larger problem in and of itself. Right. I think there's the op- also the opposite that you see everybody who's they're getting into their fancy cars or fancy clothes. They're taking all these nice trips. Yeah. It's on Instagram. I see that. Yeah. All yeah. over the place. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to figure out who's do- how they're paying <laughs> for it. Uh, must be the get yeah. rich quick scheme. That's the debt thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, but that's the problem. Right. So. So now we have foregone in general saving. Because we think, well, it's unattainable, or right. I'm not going to be able to get there, or and or you feel like you need these things, you need them now, and then we're just taking, we're robbing from the future to have something that is is typically fleeting. Right. Well, and, and again, you know, and I, I agree with you uh, about the financial industry does a lot of disservice to this because, you know, you see all these articles about how much money do you need to be saving at such and such an age, right? And they say if you're, you know, if you you need 10 times your salary by the time you reach retirement or 15 times your salary, pick a number, it doesn't really matter. You know, if your salary is $20,000 a year, 10 times your salary in retirement is not going to generate 20 grand a year for you to live on. That that's the thesis, right? When you you save up enough of your salary, a multiple of your salary, that then the interest rate off of that will then pay for your income. Right. And, and back in the 80s, that that made a lot of sense because I could have a million dollars in the bank, round numbers, and at 12 percent Treasury yields, I could get one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year. I could you know, I could have a pretty nice lifestyle back in 1980. You know, today at four percent, five percent of the 10 year Treasury, OK, a million dollars generates me 40 grand. That's great. But just a couple of years ago, it was less than $9,500 because of where we were on interest rates, right? And yeah. interest rates are going to go lower again because of, you know, economics and debt and those type of things. So, again, you know, if you've got a million dollars in the bank, it, it, you know, that, and this is kind of the disservice of the media. It's like, how do you get to a million dollars by the time you're 55? That ain't going to cut it. <laughs> you know, at 2% interest rates, that's not going to cut it in retirement. And, and, you know, I think we have to come back to the reality of what the cost of living is. You know, the average cost of living in the United States is 65 grand. How much money do you need in the bank to generate 65 grand at 2% interest rates? Well, but right. not only that, I think a lot of these articles, and this one in particular, does a disservice as well because they're talking about, okay, you need X amount. So we're going to look at 20 to tw- or 25 to 30 times your sure. what you need Pick for income, right? Yeah. Whatever yeah. it may be. Um, and... <laughs> You're gonna say that's how many that's how many years you're going to live. So you need ten times your salary, which in your example would have been two hundred thousand dollars. Which, yeah, okay, you're not going to generate twenty thousand dollars off that, even with higher interest rates. Right. I mean, it's just not attainable. But then they f- forget to factor in: Do you have any other types of income? 
Right. What else is out there? What does Social Security look like for you? And then the other expenses. So, you know, I've, I've visited with a lot of different people over our careers. And, you know, Lance, you've seen this where sure. somebody has half a million dollars. You say, look, you're great. You're ready to retire. Everything looks fantastic. And then you meet with couples who have millions of dollars. And you're like, man, you're nowhere near. <laughs> right. Because the problem is, what does that retirement look like for you? What do you expect? And so I think people forget because I think we're so caught up in the numbers mm -hmm. but then we forget about how do we actually how are we actually going to spend this and spend this down and what does that look like when you begin to inflate it so you hear all of these rules of thumb which you know they're great it's maybe kind of a barometer you want to say okay let's get to something like this i think you have to have some type of goal in mind um it's like the four percent rule mm -hmm. four percent rule there's been studies that showed that that four percent rule should have really been like 2.6 right for the longest time now granted with interest rates rising, if they can maintain these levels, which we don't think they will, yeah, that's great. We can get we can get back to four percent, sure. right? Because risk free money is is essentially more than that at the moment. Right. Yep. But that's not always going to be the case. And then you find how people actually put funds aside. That's not always, um, you know, if you're just sitting in cash. And, and guys, we've talked about this over and over and over again. If you're sitting in cash, you're not getting paid for it. You're losing out. You're missing out. No doubt. Right. Right. It's easy right now. It's easy to open an account at five minutes, transfer money, um, you know, set everything up. There, there's no excuse to not earn some type of interest is, is my right. thought. That's so, right. you know, I think you have to, you have a number of things to factor in, but number one is, you know, do you have enough money to have the retirement you want? And then are you actually accurately inflating? And nobody can accurately inflate. Shoot, the Fed's been way behind the curve for, <laughs> for how long? Yeah. And, and they're going to be behind it again. It's like, well, you know, don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. Well, don't fight them until you have but, to. But stop right there for a second, because I think this is a hugely important point. And I've seen this. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this with people. I know you have, too. Yeah. Is that, you know, do you have enough money to retire and, and live the lifestyle you want? So just, just pick a number. You say, well, if I can get 4% of my money, I'll be fine. But the problem comes in is that people will tell that I, I'll ask them, I'll say, well, so, you know, Mr. Smith, how much money do you spend every month right now? Well, right now we spend about $12,000 a month, you know, in the house and everything else. But, you know, when we retire, it's only going to be like two grand a month. No, it's not. <laughs> you know, because whatever you think you're going to cut back in retirement, you're going to replace that with something else. You know, you're going to wind up playing more golf or going fishing or doing whatever you're going to do. But whatever expenses you think you're going to cut, you're going to wind up replacing something else, not to mention higher health care costs and, you know, travel or whatever else you want to do. So, you know, the best rule of thumb is, is whatever your salary is, just take 100% of that because that's what you're going to spend in retirement. And, and that way, if you do spend less, great, you've got a buffer. But if you think you're going from 10 grand a month to two grand a month, that's not going to happen. Yeah, but but hold on. So there's a couple of things about it. So you said take your salary, but the problem is you take your salary, that's not... We'll say somebody makes a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah just but pick the number. Just just to make it easy, let's say you're putting ten thousand dollars into a four hundred one k. So now it's actually ninety. You're getting that pre tax, sure. which most people you know, we're big fans of after tax. You can do a Roth four hundred one k. But there are you know you so you start breaking this down. Okay, your health care insurance, your other benefits that you have that you're spending money on, and you're really not living off of a hundred thousand because those are going well, no, to go that, away. I was saying though, no, what you're living on. Right. Correct. If I'm living on a hundred thousand after all the other stuff, right? Yeah, like, but what most people what say is your income. In. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. But that's the problem is that most most people think, oh, I'm making a hundred thousand, so this is what I need to yeah. have in retirement. I mean, but then we start backing all that out, and that number is much different. Sure, but what I'm saying is, if you're spending ten grand a month, you're going to spend ten grand a month in retirement, probably easily. But I yeah. mean, so then we start factoring in, okay, what does a budget look like now versus in retirement? When is that home paid for? 
are you going to go spend that money in other areas? I have a lot of clients say, hey, I'm using this. I'm going to pay raise. Right. right. I'm going to use this money. We're going to spend this in other areas. But I have a lot of other people who say, listen, I don't have that anymore. That's two, three, four thousand dollars that are off the books. I'm, I don't need that to live on. Right. I don't have other big goals or we've already factored that into the financial plan. Right. And then inflate them at different numbers, depending on what that physical goal is. But my, 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 my big point is, is be realistic about what that's going to be. Right. Yeah. That's my point, because you're, you're, if you're if you live a certain lifestyle today, you're not going to go to two thousand dollars a month in retirement. And I have no. people tell me this all the time. It's like, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, you've got to have at least a realistic expectation of what you're going to be spending in retirement. Because otherwise, if you come up with some kind of, oh, I can really cut back, you know, and I can just live on rice and beans in retirement, I'll be happy. You're not going to do that. And now your whole plan is, is skewed because of an unrealistic, you know, kind of expectation you've set out there for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, you see that often. And so, have a really good understanding. And that's the, the part of, you know, we know the financial numbers typically, but we forget about all the, the qualitative things along mm -hmm. the way that we want to do. And life will change. You're going to retire and you're going to pick up a new hobby. You're going to enjoy, you'll meet new friends and say, hey, we're going to go travel a little bit sure. more with, with new people. Golf. Yeah. I mean, that's it. I, I ain't cheap. Oh, no. Nothing's cheap these days. Yeah. Shooting guns. Ammo is expensive. Very. I mean, you know, <laughs> hunting. Hunting ain't cheap. Nothing Fishing's cheap. not cheap. Pick your pick your sport. It ain't cheap. <laughs> so, all right, be right back after break. We'll we'll get on with some more of this. Are you ready to retire? Maybe, maybe not. Lance isn't. I am ready. I mean, after the ready. show today, done, all done. Right. Be right back. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com the show okay um so six signs you're ready to retire just covered one of them you know just basically do you have enough money to retire that's that's number one yeah that's and, and these, uh, these are really basic stuff like you guys know all of this i mean it's common sense yeah. but really what we're trying to do is talk about you know some of the different ways you should be looking at this and other things you should consider with this in mind i mean some of this information and you have to take anything you get out there with a grain of salt because you know everybody has a, a different philosophy or maybe they skew things a little bit differently but you know, another one is, and this is a big one, Lance, that I see is that you don't account for unexpected expenses. Mm -hmm. You know, this is so common. The air conditioner goes out, the transmission in the car goes out. Um, usually it all happens at once. Um, unexpected health events. Yeah. I mean, these are huge and not only for you, but it could be for loved ones and things that are going to take, you know, time and money from you. And, and this is one of the things that I think that, you know, we get into retirement and a lot of times somebody forgets like, ah, I don't need the retirement. Uh, you know, I have my retirement funds set aside but they don't have anything for those emergency expenses or they don't factor that into the financial plan. Like what about anything else that may pop up? And this happens so often. And so I've had a lot of clients in the past, they get to retirement and then we're, you know, we're kind of going through because it's really not a practice run for most people. You know, you get to retirement, boom, you flip the light switch, you go from an accumulator to a distributor. That's number one. 
mentally it's 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 probably exhausting for many people i mean i i know it's tough right and then you know where do you start to draw down assets is another big part and what we see a lot of times is that you use all of the the before after tax funds right like money you have you've already paid taxes on it's not in retirement and then you start spending down retirement funds and there i can make an argument to go both ways but you may want to start considering where we are with the tax code how do you meet these expenses and then you know, do you want to pull everything out and be, you know, have no flexibility from a tax perspective? And so I think this is a huge one, making sure you have emergency funds. Now, it's not going to be as the same as if you were working, right? While you're working, depending on what your job is, you know, we want to want you to set aside a little bit more money than not typically, because, you know, if, if you're a salesman on commission and it's very variable, we probably want you to have a little bit more money in the bank. If you're a tenured professor and you've got income that's just going to roll in, Mm-hmm. But you're not going to need as much. But once you retire, we still need you to have something set aside. And that magic number, I, you know, it varies for everybody. Sure. Contingent on expenses and what other additional expenses could be. But something I think that is overlooked very, very frequently. Yeah. Uh, diversified portfolio. This is always interesting. It's like, do you have all your money just kind of all spread out? You know, one of the, the, the big things is, is that when you're building a financial plan, you need to make sure that all your assets are aligning with your financial plan. Diversification is not a diversification of a bunch of different advisors. Like I've got money with 12 different advisors. That's not diversification. Actually, that's risk concentration because they're all going to own pretty much the same thing. And so you're going to wind up over risking parts of your retirement. You know, so whatever, whoever you do your financial plan with, that's where you have your money so that your money can tie and the allocation can tie to that financial plan to make sure we, we use in our shop, we use what's called a hurdle rate, right? You need to get, you know, 3% a year, 4% a year, whatever the number is to get your financial plan to work over the next 30 or 40 years. And, you know, so you need to make sure your assets are allocated properly to generate those type of returns. So diversification of assets is not the same thing as just having a bunch of different advisors that just causes all kinds of problems, increases your expenses. But it's important to have the right type of diversification in your assets, stocks, bonds, real estate, those type of things. Well, but I also think, you know, when even with one advisor, you have to be cautious because we see a lot of times somebody may come in and they have 300, 400 different positions. Well, it's yeah. like you. What are we doing here? Number one, you're, yeah. you're buying super tiny positions, but you're also you may be buying the index. So while it looks like on paper, you're extremely diversified because you have many different types of investments. That's not the case. And how are they as actively right. managing these funds? That's the problem. So you may just be, you may think you're diversified, but you may have as much risk as the index. Right. And, and, and it's, a, it's just a good exercise to actually look at your portfolio and say, how diversified am I? And, and when you're talking about diversified, you're, when you're talking about diversification, what that means is, is I've got assets that perform differently in an environment. So in other words, I have stocks and bonds. Stocks go up bonds go down. And then when stocks go down, bonds go up, right? You know, I've got these assets that are non-correlated. That's, you know, having just, you know, 500 different stocks is not diversification. You just now own an index. So you're going to go up and down with the market. And you could probably could have done it a lot easier. And, and cheaper. Yeah. Just buy an, buy an index. Um, but diversification of assets is a diversification of assets in different asset classes that perform differently in the same environment. So in other words, you've got one asset going up, one asset going down, that hedges your risk over time. 
So the, that's what diversification assets actually are. Well, I, I think that we take this really and look at it in a pretty simple way. Most people say, okay, I own stocks, I own bonds, I own large cap, mid cap, small mm -hmm. cap. And that's great. But we also need to think about what other type, what other assets do you have? Is it rental property? Do you have multifamily? Do you have other ways that you have income coming in? And making sure that that is looked at within the plan. I mean, we're talking about the basics with stocks and bonds, which is what we do sure. every day. Right. But there's many things in, that you need to factor into. Annuities. Yeah. Insurance. Well, that's right. You need to look at the income. What type of guaranteed income do you have coming in? And then we need to take a step back and say, okay, what about your variable assets? Is that the icing on the cake or is that going to be everything that you need? And then you see somebody who they jump from one to the next where it's all in on one way or the other. And that can become problematic over time as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Social Security, big one. Yeah, this is a huge one. I think that this is something that's, that's so difficult for many people to factor because it's emotional, right? Everybody's mm -hmm. put a lot of money into it. And, you know, everybody feels like they're, they're not they're getting the short end of the stick. It's not your money. It's, you know, it is your money. but No, you put your money in, but it's not for you. It's well, for everybody else. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, 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 a, you know, it's a Ponzi scheme, <laughs> right? You're putting money there's in. There's no lockbox. Yeah. There's, there's, no, there's no way around that. But, you know, th and that is problematic. And, you know, we know that Social Security, the trust, old age survivors, disability insurance trust has issues, right? Mm -hmm. But it's something that is going to be very difficult for them not to shore up in one way or another. And you and I can debate on how they're going to do that. Uh, I think there's a handful of ways that they could. We know there's not near, we have a demographic issue, which there's not nearly enough people putting into it, but we can go all the way. Like I saw something the other day and, you know, essentially right now we can go to like 2033, 2034, but, and do nothing, but then have a 20% reduction in benefits, mm -hmm. which is not feasible. The amount of people, the, the, the average check, is so small. Um, the amount of people that rely is, on it for so much check? income, it's like fifteen, sixteen hundred bucks. It okay. may not even be that much. Okay. But it's I was just curious. I didn't yeah. Know. And so the numbers change um annually, but you know, cost of living adjustments, things like that. But it's not enough for most people to live on. Like more than half retirees re, re, rely on it for more than half the retirement income. A quarter of retirees rely on it for like ninety percent of income. But what most people I think fail to, to factor in is, you know, how do you take it to get the most bang for your buck. I think a lot of times people will make an emotional decision. They take it too early. Um, and sometimes you may have to, and that's, that's okay. You know, maybe a longevity issue, you have bad health, maybe that you just need the funds to live on. But ideally, if you're still working, here's the problem I see is that there is an earnings test. So if you're, you take it pre full retirement age, you're gonna have number one, a reduction in benefits. But if you make too much money, you could also have benefits withheld, meaning you're going to pay those back. So now you've locked in a, a discount, essentially, and you're not, you may not actually be pulling anything in. And this is where people get into trouble. They don't realize this goes on. And it used to be you could pay it back at any time. Uh, now you have one year window that you can actually go back and pay those funds back and, and kind of say, okay, we're not yeah. going to do this now. So just so everybody is, is on the same page, what is the full retirement age now? 67. Right. Yeah. And they're, they're, if you're born between 55 and 59, it's going to be every year after 55, you get a two-month uh, bump. So like 66 in two months, 66 in four months, all the way until you reach just 67. So anybody born after 60, it's 67. So, and I, I would envision they change that. I think that's one way they could shore this up. Um, it's unfortunate because we know the numbers where people think they're going to retire at 65, but they actually retire earlier. Right. And, and again, it's just, you know, you, there's just consequences for doing that. And, and, you know, one of the easiest things to fix it or not, it's not going to fix it. It's, it. You've got a demographic problem. So yeah. that's, that's not... Until you fix the demographic problem, you're not going to fix the problem. But, you know, right now there's a limit on Social Security. 
on salary. So you just take the, the cap off of Social Security uh, on salaries. But it, that would bring in more revenue. But, you know, again, you just, it, there's just, you know, big problems with it that they'll have to be faced down the road somewhere. But, you know, uh, you know, I think this is one thing that when you're doing financial planning, you know, a lot of people go, you're, you're going back to saying, do I have enough money to retire on, you know, based in, the, in my investment account? If I take out 4%, can I live on that? You also have to include in that your Social Security payment because that's you are going to have that payment coming in at least for a while. Yeah. So essentially, so if you right, right now, so what Lance is getting at is that income is only taxed up to $160,200 for this year. And so... Any any dollar you make over it, then you know you basically get a pay raise. Yeah, you're not going to have any more income tax or excuse me, social security tax taken out of that. So that's your payroll tax. Um, and what they've talked about though is like, okay, we're going to kind of have like a donut hole. We talked about that with Medicare. Mm-hmm. There's holes in there we need to fill in. But essentially, they've talked about in the past over the last two years of saying, okay, we're going to tax up to one sixty two hundred. And that number changes each year uh, based on inflation. And then we're going to stop. But then we'll start again at three hundred thousand, which I don't know why they just don't blow the cap off at all. Together. They just need to blow the cap. I mean, if you're look, if you're gonna if you're gonna try to extend longevity of Social Security, you just yeah. have to take the cap off, and you're ultimately gonna have to include all other forms of compensation in that number. So in other words, it's not just on salary; it's on your total compensation. So if I'm getting a lot of stock option compensation as a CEO of a company, your eyes are gonna have to tax that as well. I know you don't want to hear that, but no. If it, I'm just saying, if you want to bail out Social Security, that's the easiest way to, to go about it. And I'm not even sure that's going to fix the problem. No, gonna, you well, still have a demographic problem. CPAs will love it. <laughs> True. <laughs> All right. Um, we got any more? We got a couple left. Yeah, right? we got a couple left. And I, I, we'll tie this one up on that side. All right. You got it. Be right back right after the break. news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com and welcome back to the show so uh, just talking about uh, six signs ready to retire just a kind of quick recap do you have enough money in the bank uh, to retire on uh, if you, do you have a fund for unforeseen expenses? So do you have an emergency fund set aside for, you know, health care issues, uh, you know, broken down car, whatever happens? Uh, have you diversified your portfolio in non-correlated assets that also generate income? Um, do you know how Social Security fits into your, into your income bracket, right? So how will Social Security, you know, when can you take it? How much is that going to be? And what does that, how much does that affect the income, you, income stream you need to generate from your assets and retirement, because again, the less money you can take out of your assets, the long the the longer the longevity of the portfolio is in retirement to generate income for you. So again, the less bleed you take off of it, the longer it lets those assets live. Um, of course, you know the the biggest you know as we just talked about, you know you need to have a fund set aside because healthcare is you know look we're all getting older, healthcare costs are going to go up. Um, you know 
United Healthcare recently just made the announcement that you know they're taking an earnings hit because now you know older people are all taking elective surgeries to get hips replaced, knees replaced. You know, uh, want to play tennis in retirement, got to have the knees fixed, right? So yeah, a lot of pickleball injuries out there <laughs> exactly. right now. Exactly. Um, so that that kind of really brings into the problem, you know, of of you know now you've left your job. You had health care through your company. Now you leave your job and retire. You've got to supplement that with some other form of health care. Yeah, and I think that so this is a big one, and this is a major, major expense and determinant of if somebody can retire, especially pre-65, because mm-hmm. health care is so expensive before you get on Medicare. Right. And that's that's a problem where it's the elephant in many financial plans. They say, look, I'm going to retire at 55, I'm retired at 60. And then just health care is so unaffordable you know, most people don't realize it because it is being subsidized through big companies. Right. And so, you know, what you want to make sure you're doing now is that you have funds set aside for that. That's a, a particular goal within your financial plan and utilizing and putting funds in the right places if you can do so. So if you're on a high deductible health plan currently. Can you go utilize a health savings account? Um, you can't put a ton of money into it, but that is one of the only accounts in the world that's going, it is that I know of, that gives you a triple tax benefit. You put the funds in tax-free, they grow tax-free, and then you pull them out, and you can distribute those funds as long as you're using them for medical or health expenses without paying any taxes. Right. And so, obviously, the sooner you start this, the better. So, for many of you guys out there that are maybe much younger and say, look, I'm nowhere near retirement, if you have one of these funds or accounts that you can fund, max it out. There's no reason not to. Right. What's the limit and on that now, 5000 No, it's a little over 7000 I think 7, it's like 73 something yeah. this year. So trying to call me at f- six o'clock in the morning on numbers. Come on. Lady. <laughs> You're supposed to know this stuff. I Back do know it. Head. Yeah, yeah, We've yeah, been yeah. trying to reach you about your car insurance. <laughs> thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody's been trying to reach somebody about their car yeah, insurance. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so, you know, healthcare is, you know, an issue just obviously just, you know, as you go into retirement, they, you know, there's studies out that show that in the latter part of your lifetime, uh, you'll spend as much as $350,000 on medical care, the average American will. And that's mostly because, you know, we don't take care of our health. Obviously, if you, you know, eat right and you exercise, take care of yourself, um, you know, your probably your health care expenses will probably be lower than those that don't, right? Um, well, we talk about that a lot. Health, good health equals wealth because you're not draining so much and you're going to have a healthier lifestyle in general, which can bring costs down. But that number, so for an individual, is 3000 $850 for a family at $7,750 is, is your limits on what yeah. you can put aside. Yeah. Now, the one thing I think that the problem with health savings accounts, many people confuse them with flexible spending accounts. And so the issue with that is, is that, you know, a flexible spending account is exactly what it says. You need to spend that money typically annually. They may let you spend it into the following year just for a couple of months, usually up to March. But a health savings account, you don't have to spend those funds. And so the idea would be is to put some funds aside. Typically, we like to say, okay, two years of premiums, if you can have that in cash, then if the accounts allow for it, begin to invest the remainder of those funds. And we can make arguments that you want to fund this because um, you know if you're not going to max out your 401k and this, we'd say, hey, contribute to the 401k up to the match and then go put funds aside here and do not use these funds if you can avoid it. Uh, that's the problem. Most people say, hey, I'm putting funds in. We use it every year. We get a little bit of a match within our HSA as well. It's been a great account. But I think you're going to regret it later on down the road because this is an asset that you can pull down from that's not going to be subject to IRMA for Medicare premium surcharges, not going to be subject to taxation. Uh, we want that diversification of accounts as well where it gives you multiple places and sources that you can pull from 
So that way you can minimize potential taxes in the future. Yeah. And again, that's just a that's just a hard thing for people to work on trying to, you know, again, just trying to live life, raise kids. It's constantly yeah, something, no, I get you know, it. it's just every time you turn around, the school's calling you, oh, we need money for this or that or the other thing. You know, it's just something. Yeah, no, I, look, look, I can certainly relate to that. I know it's tough and, you know, but you've got to start thinking about the future and how do you put these funds aside? Because at some point, everybody thinks, well, I'm going to keep working. I'm going to work till I'm 70. I'm working till I'm 75. There's a handful that do, but most of the time something happens. Yeah. Uh, last thing is uh, the number six is getting rid of debt. And, you know, I want to put a, I want to put a caveat on that. And cause I see a lot of, I see people do this is that they try to pay off all their debt, right. Including their house. Yeah. And that, that's a Dave Ramsey throw over, which is, you know, pay off all your debt, including your mortgage. You know, the problem with paying off your house is, is that it's an asset. Um, it does appreciate over time, at least with inflation, sometimes more. Um, but you know, it's a place that you're living and, you know, if you sink all your money into your house and, and this is particularly the case, if you're going to die in that house, right? So this, you know, I see, I see this a lot with individuals, they're going to go into retirement and they go, okay, I'm, you know, I'm building my dream home and we're going to pay cash for it. Don't, you're going to die in that house and your kids don't want your house, by the way. Uh, so don't put all your money in the house, take out a mortgage on the house. Let the, you know, pay the mortgage, deduct the interest, that, because as soon as you sink all that money into the house, it's now a dead asset because, again, it's not going to generate an income stream for you in retirement. And so you've, you've taken money out of the ability to grow for you and generate something just to pay off a debt. But now when it comes back to paying off debt in retirement, no credit card debt, absolutely, you know, all, you know, no, you know auto loans, pay those off if you want, but you're always going to have a car. So I'm not if you, if you can finance it at zero one percent like we did for a while makes sense, but you know as far as credit card debt those type of things absolutely pay that kind of debt off. Yeah, especially the revolving debt or anything yeah. that's going to have those higher interest rates. I think we want to make sure we always pay those down. You know, it's it's a little bit different right now, especially with paying off a house. Like I have a lot of clients that we talk about frequently mm -hmm. say, "Hey, I'm, I want to pay the house off. I got the money setting aside." Well, what's the mortgage? Well, it's two point eight five. Yeah, why three yeah, percent? Like when you're getting on cash or should be getting on cash, you know, upwards of four yep. percent. No reason for you not to for you to do it right now. Now maybe that changes in two or three years, but maybe you go buy a CD or a treasury bill and you're getting over five percent. Using some arbitrage on this isn't a bad thing. And once we get back to an environment where maybe interest rates are back to zero, yeah, go pay it off. Yep. Uh, but you, Lance makes a really good point in the sense that when we pay off a, a hard asset like a home specifically. You're turning, you know, Richard uses this analogy quite a bit. We're turning water into ice and all of a sudden it becomes a lot more difficult to chip away at these funds if you need something to meet those emergency expenses or additional cash. Now, listen, if you've got a, a ton of money sitting on the sideline, you've got a very defined plan, go for it, especially if it gives you that peace of mind. And I think that is what it comes down yeah. to, to a lot of people, just the peace of mind aspect to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and certainly does. And again, you know, my point is, is that, you know, you know, we've we've kind of, you know, there's there's kind of parts of our industries like all debt is bad. But if you take a look at rich people, like really, really wealthy people, they use a lot of debt, but oh, yeah. they have so much income and other assets they are using leverage to their advantage. It's just like, you know, if you're if, and, and you'll understand this, if you're a real estate investor, you know, if I'm going out to buy real estate properties, I'm going to turn them into rental properties. I don't go pay cash for the rental home. Right. I put 20 percent down. I finance the balance. I use that leverage. The house generates an income stream to pay off that leverage. But, you know, that allows me, instead of being able to buy one house, I can buy five houses and turn them into rental property. So using leverage to your advantage is 
not bad. All debt is not bad. And the, and the point we want to make here is that, you know, you've eliminated debt that is bad debt, you know, credit card debt, those type of things, high interest rate debt, things that'll get you into trouble over time and, and that don't generate a benefit. Using debt for something that generates a, an income benefit is, is fine. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and even that, I think that, you know, I talked to a lot of people that want to get into real estate and or single family homes. Yeah. They're like, oh, I need X amount of income off this every month. Well, the idea would be is that you're not putting every dollar you have into that one specific home. You're going to go put as little down as possible. You have somebody else pay it off. Mm-hmm. You turn around, you use that money for another home. And that's how you can start to accumulate wealth. And in that instance, I think debt's not a bad thing. But you have to be in an environment where you don't need that money to live on either. That's right. And that's what problem. happens if you wind up with no renters for a period yeah. of time, right? Well, and <laughs> that's where you have to be really thoughtful. Okay, what's, what do I have set aside for that environment? And I still have to make that payment. Um, I have one. We just, we're getting somebody in there right now that um, it's been vacant for like three or four months. Yeah. You know, but yeah, it happens. I mean, that's just, that's just part of the game of yeah. you know, owning real estate property. You just got to be prepared for it. And it's a business like anything else. But the important thing is, is just, again, just kind of wrapping this up. You know, have, you know, plan for your Social Security, plan for your retirement, have enough assets, diversify those assets, pay off, you know, bad debt. And just, you know, a a good financial plan will help you identify all these areas. Make sure you've got enough insurance. Make sure you've got, you know, um, know, long-term care insurance in place to take care of some of the health care, you know, expenses later on in your retirement years. Hospice care, potentially. You know, those are things that a good financial plan will will walk through and identify and tell you where you're short. Well, absolutely. And understand Social Security exactly how that fits in. And so remember, it's not just a conversation that you need to have if you're married, you have a spouse. Um, That is something that the two of you need to have together to make sure you maximize and get the most bang for your buck. Taking a 62 does not always mean you're going to get more money. And and, and many times we find that if you live, so there's break-even points. If you have a longevity, especially you're going to leave a lot of money on the table if you don't take it correctly. So make sure you're figuring out exactly what you need to do when it comes to Social Security. Absolutely. All right, wraps up the show for today. We will be back tomorrow with Michael Leibowitz. Yes, we'll get into the whole debt default thing. I'll just give you a preview. No, it's not that big of a thing. But we'll talk about it tomorrow just because it's a good topic. So we'll get into that. Uh, Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. If you have any questions for Danny, uh, feel free to email him. Just uh, click the ask question button right on the front page. And if you want to know you're ready for retirement, he'll tell you everything you need to know. So just send him an email. He loves emails. He needs lots of them every day because he really doesn't do a lot of anything else. So just email him at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. And we'll see you back here tomorrow.